I'm Jacob Kurtzer. And I'm Kirsten Gelsdorf. And this is Beyond Aid, a podcast that takes you beyond the challenging headlines of humanitarian crises. And dives deeper into the people, ideas, and issues that may help us find ways to connect to humanitarian action. In today's conversation, I speak with Chris Houston, the former Director of Humanitarian Innovation for Grand Challenges Canada. Chris takes us beyond the buzzword of innovation and shares with us some inspiring examples of local and global responses to crisis that we don't often hear about. He also talks about the power of combining global solidarity with local action. Chris Houston, it's so great to have you on Beyond Aid. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. So, Chris... You and I met working on some of the grand challenges and looking at kind of different innovation projects. So I think sometimes when I tell people that I work on humanitarian innovation, they're kind of curious as to what that is. So how do you define humanitarian innovation? I'm glad you asked. I think it's a good starting point. I sometimes find that the word innovation is a is a barrier to people engaging in this space because it's a sort of an intimidating word and people think it's all like high tech and science and inventors and things like that. And that's not how I see it at all. The way I like to think of this is that either we think that the humanitarian system is perfect, open brackets, it's not, or it needs to change. And if we therefore rationally conclude that it needs to change, then innovation is sort of any mechanism that, that gets us there. And can you give us some examples of what it looks like? I mean, where I most recently worked, we funded a whole bunch of things. You could take HALA systems who use acoustic sensors to predict the flight path of attack aircraft and send warnings to hospitals about where bombs may fall. Very high-tech innovation there. You could take the White Helmets in Syria who created the first PPE manufacturing plant in Syria Not particularly high-tech, but the first time it happened, exceptionally relevant in times of COVID and pandemic. You could take Rainmaker Enterprise, who uses solar energy and drip irrigation to turn the crop-growing cycle in Tonge in South Sudan from, from creating one harvest of crops a year to two. These are all innovations, quite difficult quite different levels of technology there. The use of telemedicine, you know, has has really recently taken off and had a huge impact. One theme that I'm particularly excited about is making things locally. I don't even know if that's particularly innovative or not, but it's, it's particularly necessary in a time of global supply chain interruptions and global inequality and the increasing obvious costs of moving things around, both in terms of time and money and also carbon. I could go on, but there's some examples of what I'm talking about. What's interesting is that it, you know, innovation is sometimes product or programming or process, but you also, the way in your first answer, you describe it also kind of as a mindset. Do you think that it's an area that is being engaged in from a place of kind of positivity, like look at what we can still do? What's your mindset around innovation and the humanitarian sector? I mean, (laughs) my mindset fluctuates the ideas I just told you about. I'm super buzzed about. They're all fantastic. But I also have a sense of anger and despair about the humanitarian system that some of these things aren't more normalized, you know, and and the the balance of power and the extent to which solutions like this are, are underfunded, particularly 
local solutions, it sometimes feels like, or, or maybe I should just say that it is an injustice, the extent to which local solutions are, are not given the funding and the support compared to the status quo. So if the question is, what is my mindset? It's, it's, it's a bit of a mixture of frustration with a system that is trying hard and yet not fit for purpose and massively too small to address the problems it's got and a system that is lacking the safety to do what it wants to do due to a lack of respect for humanitarian space or humanitarian principles or humanitarian neutrality. And yet, you know, the, the optimism that there are brilliant ideas and we just need to, to support them more. When people ask you, I mean, you ha you've had this long career in humanitarian aid. Do you still believe in global humanitarian assistance as having an important role in solving these challenges or how do you see it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean, people have unmet needs. It's our duty to tackle them. Of course, they shouldn't have unmet needs. The system shouldn't exist, right? Like the, the people shouldn't have unmet needs, you know. So the baseline should be that, that none of this should be necessary, but it is desperately necessary. And, and, and what exists is far too small. So you mean more funding, more action? Is that what you mean? Massively so, massively so. You know, like I, I checked the data on some of the places that I thought you might ask me about this morning. Yemen response is currently 25% funded. You know, th the last time I checked, the world spends more money on chewing gum or on ice cream than it does on humanitarian assistance. To say that it's too small is to look at a building on fire to give a firefighter a water pistol and then ask them if they think we need to innovate a better water pistol. It's like, well... Yeah, but like it kind of needs to be revolutionarily larger, you know, and yet also probably what it needed was a firefighter from the community that understand how to get to the building rather than a bunch of outsiders. I, I do believe strongly that there's a need for international solidarity, but there's there's a need for local organizations to be given power. And I don't know exactly what the balance should be. Right. I, I think it's appropriate to, to cross borders and to help people when you're invited to do so. So many of my students believe that the global system needs to be broken down or taken apart or maybe even gone. So I, I'm curious, you mentioned global solidarity. And I believe in that as well, that there's enough of a role and enough of a need for both global response and local response. But what would you answer to my students who would say, oh, the, you know, the entire system, the World Health Organization, the UN, Doctors Without Borders... It's all kind of part of, you know, a neo-colonial construct of privilege. Where and how would you defend the, the concept of international solidarity and the global system? That is a difficult question. And you're asking a white guy from Scotland to comment on a system that he's part of. So I'll just acknowledge my sort of bias and privilege before I attempt to answer that question. And some of my most unhappy moments i've i've had similar thoughts to that and i've seen the way the system works and i've questioned that i was asked to deliver a class at university of toronto to talk about how to do international partnerships and i decided that what i should do is invite humanitarians from the countries that are affected to, to deliver most of the content and i was chatting 
to Dr. Rita Sugars, a, a Rohingya neurosurgeon, and I was asking her to critique the hard experiences of seeing foreign-led medical teams going to Myanmar and, and, and supporting the populations. And, and she, she was quite clear with me not to be too critical because she said that's the only people that come. You know, like if we reject the, the concept of international solidarity, then then nobody else is delivering healthcare for Rohingya. And as much as we would like to say that local government should provide it, they don't. And kind of taking this same conversation into the innovation space, you know, I know a lot of the work that you've done and a lot of the innovation that you've promoted is really about kind of local innovators. Sometimes some of the solutions are not so high tech and they're not so shiny and they don't make it to the front page and they don't necessarily excite people in the same way because they're not such an easy story to tell. I think one of the trends that I've seen over the years is, is that some of the shiny box things don't work as well. And so people get a bit turned off by innovation. I increasingly don't like <laughs> the word innovation and I increasingly try to say to people, hey, if, if you say to most humanitarians, do you see yourself as an innovator? I, I don't know if they do. But if you speak to most humanitarians that have worked in places where there's needs, that could they imagine a better system? Have they ever seen an opportunity to improve it? I think 100% of them would say yes. But I don't know if they necessarily identify as innovators. So I think to some extent the word innovation can be a barrier and it can be too associated with high-tech, shiny things. And we need to be mindful of that when we have these conversations. So I remember one of the interventions that you and I had looked at was maggot therapy. Yeah, that was Mag Labs out of Griffiths University in Australia. They, they wanted to use a very old, I think, World War I system to, to treat wounds in Syria. I remember that conversation very clearly because it was a very interesting moment where we were looking at this proposal that an Australian guy called Dr. Frank Stadler of Griffiths University had, had, had stuck in and they wanted to use maggots to treat wound care. And a lot of the people in the room thought that this would not be well received by people in Syria. But we had people from Syria in the room and the way that we do a review process is that we bring people in from the communities affected by crisis. So, so we had two people from Syria in the room and they were like, no, actually, this would be fine. I think our community would appreciate this. And it just shows you the problems of, of when Westerners try to make decisions about what's good for people in other places because actually the Syrians were unanimous and saying that this, this would be well received by, by their community. Do you think that the sector is good at talking about learning and also leaning into something that I've recently been reading more about called positive deviance, right? Like where is things working and how do we capitalize on that? I find that most humanitarian conferences or papers or things that I look at either they're self-promotional about a certain product that they're trying to put out or how many people they supported, or it's the flip. It's a conversation of why the system is failing and how it's failing, but that there's not this middle ground space of learning and curiosity that I find sometimes to be happening in the innovation space. I agree with you, but I think there's reasons for that. And it's about the comfort that people who fund it have with discussing their own failures. It's easy to criticize the system, but more difficult to criticize yourself. The thing about most aid is it's funded by governments and the public aren't ready to hear about failures. And, and in fact, I think programs like the one I used to run exist because they sort of aggregate risk. That they, there, there may be many failures in there, but there's enough successes that justify the whole thing. And as a package that, that works well, and that's considered to, to be a sort of balance of risk, but to fund them individually, the, the public I don't think the media is, is able, you know, I, I think if, if one program failed, that would that could be headline news that could embarrass 
a government and it could outrage the public and and the public aren't really ready for this in venture capitalism you know failure's quite normal and 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 that's a that's a way to work but in the humanitarian space failure like we've discussed is is not well received by the public I saw in a past podcast that you were talking about how, you know, the pandemic brought so many challenges, but one thing that it also did was it brought with it the accelerated needs for innovation, right? Especially towards advancing local capacities. And earlier in this call, you mentioned, oh, the current global supply chain challenges that are linked to the pandemic, but also to the war in Ukraine have also brought some changes and some different solutions. I was wondering maybe if you could expand on those a little bit. So I think the pandemic highlighted some bad things in the world, you know, that we hadn't thought enough about, right? One was the fragility of just-in-time supply chains and, and, and global supply chains. And I think the fragility of that was suddenly made very clear. I, I think that has started or accelerated a desire to have more local made solutions. So I see that as a good thing. It's maybe a bad thing that, that we only collectively sort of saw that when disease landed on our doorstep in the West, you know, like like I, I, I wish desire to shift power and to do things more environmentally was clear before we were negatively impacted. And, and wealthy countries, you know, like it sometimes seems that we didn't care about disease outbreak and surveillance when people who didn't have the same level of power were only affected. So that's good. You know, I, I think in the humanitarian system, the reliance on international staff sort of went down in the pandemic. And, and, and I hope that that might drive a power shift where local staff got more power to run things. There's two points that I want to emphasize. One is that it's appropriate to critique the system and to, to want innovation. But we must have that conversation at the same time as talking about the size of the system. You know, for as long as the humanitarian system is only reaching a tiny fraction of the people in need, then to, to sort of repeat the analogy I gave earlier, there's a building on fire, the firefighter has a water pistol, and we're talking about whether the water pistol is optimally efficient or not, when what they really need is multiple fire hoses. The, the system needs to be massively bigger and critique of the system is necessary, but we need to talk about the size of the system and the absolute lack of humanitarian assistance in the world at the same time. And innovation is necessary, but in some ways a return to some of the agreements that, that were struck decades ago where we respect humanitarians as being neutral and impartial and we don't drop bombs on their hospitals, you know, and that humanitarians can operate with safety and that people respect their neutrality. And we must talk about that as well. And, and, and the absolute erosion of that is an absolute barrier in many of the world's biggest humanitarian crises. And we therefore need a, a stronger respect for humanitarians and, and for multilateral organizations and we can critique, you know, global supply chains or certain aspects of globalization, but we must be careful to protect the international agreements that we have to, to protect humanitarians. And we must 
do better as a world to to make sure that the trends are reversed. Last year was the most dangerous year in many recent years for the frequency of the attacks on humanitarian workers continue to try to rise. You know, we don't need innovation. We need to return to the principles that was agreed there. What got you to take the job at Grand Challenges? What was it that excited you about kind of working in the humanitarian innovation space? <laughs> I, I saw in the notes that you were going to ask me that. And I, and I was like, how honest do I be with my answer to that? Because here's the thing, like, I just spent six months in, in Yemen and it was a scary six months. I got a PTSD diagnosis maybe about a year and a half later after returning. What attracted me to the job? The fact that there was a senior humanitarian job in Toronto, like there's, there's, there isn't many humanitarian jobs in Toronto. I was very attracted to the idea of having a full-time permanent job that was reasonably well paid. You know, like most of my work with many of the agencies, not the WHO, but the others didn't pay very well. And I was pretty poor. I was pretty happy to have a full-time job. Now, what kept me there is the, is the good answer. You know, like what kept me there was that I started to see that it could be a, a, ch a chance to make a big impact. But honestly, like poverty and job security and the ability to like have a normal, you know, family life in my home city was was what drove me to it. Because because a lot of the humanitarian work that we've spoken about is, is really very badly paid and incompatible with, you know, owning a home or anything like that. So it's a grand challenge. He's kind of offered like a reasonable salary. And I'd done some innovation stuff with, with MSF. But I started to realize that, that it was a great opportunity to to showcase some good ideas that I think could make change. And that's what that's what kept me there. But combination of altruistic and selfish reasons is the truth. It's kind of difficult doing overseas humanitarian work. It doesn't pay well. It's quite stressful. It's not very compatible with normal life. And I was pretty excited just to have a job on my own doorstep for once. Thank you for sharing that. So honestly, I, I think you're not alone in some of those challenges. And one of the reasons that we've kind of we're talking to kind of to contemplative practice individuals is is about that is you know what what are the practices what are the ways in the system can allow aid workers to also confront PTSD and confront challenges and you know find spirits of optimism and progress in this sector whether they're working within their own communities or whether they're working across borders globally not only is their mental health burden on, on humanitarian workers, but they tend to have short-term contracts. And, and so the complex PTSD or PTSD that hits them, you know, a few years down the line is, is well after they've left the employment. So so it's a it's a very real situation. I, I think it's also important to mention that for whatever stresses and headaches people like me have, at least we get to have them in our, in our home country after we return safely. Most humanitarian workers don't have that benefit and most of them live in the countries that are affected. They don't have access to even the systems that, that, that we have here in Canada, you know. So so important to just mention that local humanitarians have an even more difficult time. They don't get the R and R, they, their family are there with them, you know. So so important just to acknowledge that as well. Yeah, one thing I mean I'm kind of optimistic about is I was at the Humanitarian Networks Partnership Week in Geneva and mental health psychosocial support is something that is on the agenda, right? I mean, even if there's still a long way to go. I would say 10 years ago, there were not breakout sessions and policy groups, you know, of the International Agency Standing Committee, right, the body that kind of defines a lot of the conventional established UN humanitarian policy. They had three handouts on their table. One was mental health and psychosocial support, and one was sexual abuse and exploitation, and one was disabilities. And to me, those are the little 
bright spots that I get excited about when I think about these things that we used to think of as nice to have, or maybe afterthoughts are becoming more, we're more open about them. We're talking about them and we're thinking about them. There's still a long way to go, but to me, that's a, that's a light of progress. Thank you, Chris Houston, for joining us on Beyond Aid. Next time on the podcast, we will talk to Arathi Krishnan from the United Nations Development Program, who takes us further into innovation with an emphasis on ethics and technology, and also gives us her insights into radical hope. Thank you for listening to Beyond Aid. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. To make sure you don't miss our next episode, subscribe to Beyond Aid on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.